Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. Climate One brings together thought leaders from around the world to advance solutions to global warming. The Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan forum open to the public. Join us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Greg Dalton, Vice President of the Club and founder of Climate One. We're honored today to welcome a distinguished panel of experts to discuss the opportunities and challenges presented by global climate change. R.K. Pachari is Chairman of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and Director General of the Energy and Resources Institute in New Delhi. Last year, he accepted the Nobel Peace Prize on behalf of 2,000 climate scientists around the world. He has been associated with many research institutes and served on the board of the Indian Oil Corporation, a $50 billion energy company, as well as the National Thermal Power Corporation. Mary Nichols is chair of the California Air Resources Board, the primary state agency charged with cutting the emission of greenhouse gases. California Governor Schwarzenegger appointed her to that position in 2007. Mary also headed the agency under Governor Jerry Brown from 1978 to 1983. During the Clinton administration, Mary was an assistant administrator of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Ray Lane is managing partner of Kleiner Perkins Caulfield & Byers, a venture capital firm in Silicon Valley that is an avid proponent of the economic opportunity of cleaner fuels and technologies. Kleiner Perkins has committed a billion dollars to clean tech startups. Before joining Kleiner Perkins, Ray was chief operating officer of Oracle, the second largest software company in the world. So please give a warm Commonwealth Club welcome to our panel today. Dr. Bachar, I'd like to begin with you on, on the scientific point. Uh, according to the current scientific consensus, how much does the world need to cut carbon emissions and how quickly are we, as some scientists say, approaching a tipping point beyond which devastating climate change, changes will be unavoidable? Thank you very much. Firstly, let me acknowledge uh, this opportunity to speak to such a distinguished audience and thank you for inviting me. Um, well, I think the extent to which we need to cut emissions of greenhouse gases needs to be determined on the basis of where we want to stabilize the Earth's climate. Just to give you an indication, if we want to stabilize temperature increase to no more than 2 to 2.4 degrees Celsius, we would then have to necessarily ensure that the emissions of greenhouse gases must start declining by 2015. So that gives us only seven years. And the extent to which we should reduce them, well, if we look at, say, the period uh, 2020, the overall reduction that would be required would be 25 to 40 percent. If we look at the, the year 2050, it will have to be anywhere from 50 to 85 percent. Uh, but these are figures that are based on uh, the assessments that the assessment that's been carried out currently. It's entirely possible that with emerging new knowledge and evidence, we find that the impacts of climate change are going to be far worse than what we had anticipated earlier. And if I could voice an opinion, which is purely a personal opinion, I think we find that clearly we are on a trend which seems to show an excess of the impacts, a more seriousness of the impacts than was estimated earlier. So. That's the kind of perspective we have on the rate at which we need to cut emissions. Uh, I might also mention that the worst impacts of climate change will be felt among several communities that are already stressed in several respects. These are the poorest communities in the world, not necessarily in the developing countries, but also in the developed world. Look at what happened with Hurricane Katrina in the city of New Orleans the worst affected and those who were left behind and suffered the most were the poorest of uh, the residents of that city. So, I mean, that's just a broad indication of what is required to be done with a sense of urgency. Let me just end by saying that I'm really very appreciative of what's being done in California and I'd like to compliment Mary for what she's produced in terms of this 
scoping plan and the leadership of the state under uh, Governor Schwarzenegger. Thank you. So, Mary, California has a plan to reduce uh, emissions, and can you, you mentioned the scoping plan. A lot of people don't know what that is. So you can tell us what is the scoping plan and, and where is California fitting into what Dr. Prachari says we need to do? Well, actually, what we've published is a draft scoping plan because it's the work of uh, the government, the state of California, with a lot of input from stakeholders. Uh, we spent almost a year gathering information from other agencies, from the business community, from environmental organizations, environmental justice, uh, advocacy groups, local governments. Uh, but our work isn't done. Uh, so what we've presented is our best recommendation for how the state could meet the legislative mandate of a law called AB 32, the California Global Warming Solutions Act, that was passed in 2006. And I think uh, we owe a tremendous debt of gratitude to the California legislature and to Governor Schwarzenegger for having signed this bill because at the time that it was passed, it was the first legally mandated cap on greenhouse gas emissions by any state in the country. And um, it is an ambitious uh, cap. Uh, you can always uh, try to compare exactly the burden that different uh, areas have taken on. But I think it's important to remember that by saying that we would take our emissions back to 1990 levels by 2020, what California agreed to do was to uh, impose upon itself a 30% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions over business as usual. And that reflects the fact that we are a rapidly growing state. We are not a static economy as are some of the other uh, countries that signed on to the Kyoto Treaty. Uh, we're a state that's growing in population and our economy has also been growing very rapidly. So uh, what we're trying to do is to challenge ourselves to uh, maintain our pace of growth and at the same time go on a carbon diet. And the scoping plan lays out our ideas about how to do that. It's a mix of uh, measures that include um, some specific requirements that we would look to the auto industry, um, the, the fuel suppliers, uh, the energy industry to uh, mandate uh, more efficiency, but we do it in a way that allows them more flexibility in terms of how they comply. And then we also add uh, to that mix something new, which is a cap on emissions with uh, permits that or would be allocated to most sectors of our economy, and then there would be uh, the ability to trade. But we are uh, specifically saying that we wish to set up this system to be as broad-based as possible, starting with the Western Climate Initiative, which is an alliance of seven states and two Canadian provinces, but we hope very rapidly transitioning into a national program and one where we would be able to link up with other economies of the world because the way we're going to get the most uh, reductions at the least cost and do it in a way uh, that's the most appealing to people is if we can engage uh, as much of our world as possible in this effort. Uh, thank you, Mary. Ray, a lot of some businesses opposed California's law and continue to oppose uh, carbon policies nationally. How do you view uh, California's Global Warming Solutions Act as an investor, and what would you like to see that isn't in place now? You know, I remember, I think it was three or four years ago, uh, we pulled together a small network of leaders who had done a lot of work, studies in the in the uh, green tech field as we were starting to become very interested in allocating funds toward green tech companies, which today we have about 40 investments in new new technologies in the area. And, and we didn't know what AB 32 was. And I remember in a group that included Fred Krupp and Hal Harvey, and I think it was Bob Epstein who basically stood up and said, you know, the single thing we could do these, that we, these are environmental leaders, right? Environmentals. Uh, the, the single thing we could do to influence the shot heard around the world would be to get behind AB 32 and for business people to go to Sacramento and help that side of the aisle uh, to come around to that it's good for business. And it seems like I've been part of that debate for the last four years, that anyone that opposes 
any climate change policy or moves uses the economy as an excuse that it will slow our economy down. It will change uh, the prospects of our economy. And you know, how, even, even at the international level, how could the U.S. be so uh, arrogant as to think they could build their economy on fossil fuels over the last hundred years, but don't expect us to do it in China or India the same, same way? And as you step back and look at it, it's actually just the opposite, that, that investment in new technology that turns out to be very high-growing businesses that come from that technology, just like a lot of other Silicon Valley or Southern California industries. Look at the number of industries this state has created, from aerospace to biotech to semiconductors to Internet-based software. Uh, It's a a long, long list. Uh, Movies, making movies. And, uh, and I think this is going to be an industry very similar where it produces high growth rates uh, in terms of number of jobs, and we will be the innovation for the rest of the world. So certainly to California, I feel very certain that this, the, the more aggressive we become in setting climate uh, policy, the better it will be for business in California. Uh, what a shame if those jobs, if those companies, if those innovators were to go somewhere else. Uh, we have Silicon Valley today. We have other regions of California today that have come from the similar roots. And I think we'll look back in 20 years and say we created an entire new industry which has a number of jobs in GDP. There have been a number of studies done to look at the long-term effects to G- GDP growth uh, of climate change policy, uh, even aggressive policy, and it's minuscule. It's minuscule in terms of its economic impact. Thank you. We're going to talk a fair amount about transportation, partly because transportation is one of the biggest uh, sources of, of greenhouse greenhouse gases. Uh, gas prices are on everyone's minds these days. It's an international issue. Uh, one environmental executive said recently that $4 gas is doing more to advance conservation and change transportation and consumption patterns than environmentalists ever did. Um, so the question really is about our gas prices driving the kind of painful transition in, in habits of products. You see General Motors and others uh, closing down truck factories and selling more gas-sipping cars. So is the marketplace, is this a good thing, though painful, to push us in the right direction that we need to go right now, 4 or $5 gas? Dr. Well, Pichon. I think that's entirely true. Uh, but we must accept the fact that there's always a time lag between, say, price signals and the effect that they're going to have over a period of time. Simply because you have infrastructure, you've got capital equipment, people have cars, people have automobiles, which are dependent on gasoline prices that existed, say, two years ago or three years ago. So you're not going to see the full impact of these gas prices immediately. But over a period of time, yes, you'll see innovation, you will see more efficient cars, and I hope that can be assisted by regulation and government policy. Uh, and you will see a shift even in transport habits. So I think gas prices, and crude oil prices, are certainly uh, an extremely important and powerful force to bring about change. And I hope that if, in the unlikely event, these prices go down in the future, Governments will have the foresight to close the gap through taxation measures. Because I recall in 73, 74, when oil prices quadrupled, there was a similar kind of spirit. There were some countries that took permanent measures to bring about a restructuring of their economic systems. But when oil prices crashed in 1985, then, you know, it was business as usual, and people abandoned research and development. Incidentally, just one fact, 85, I published a book on the global political economy of global energy, which focused on oil prices, and I predicted that they'd go even higher. And I was totally wrong. My only consolation was that I wasn't the only one that was wrong. So <laughs> in 85, when oil prices crashed, and so did the sales of my book, uh, <laughs> we, we suddenly entered a different 
era altogether. And you know, people just went about their way. And, and all the gas-guzzling SUVs and Hummers came much after that. Mary, do, are gas prices helping you? You know, uh, I think it's painful for people to have to uh, pay the price of gasoline as it is today when they made choices in many cases that were uh, unfortunately based on uh, a much cheaper gasoline and people uh, who wanted to buy homes that were affordable uh, had to move many miles away from where they work without any real mass transit alternatives. Uh, People uh, who uh, purchased large uh, cars that now seem very undesirable to drive but uh, when they were a good deal uh, at one point in time and gas prices didn't seem relevant. I don't think uh, anyone uh, in a democratic society can say that we would like to see the price of gasoline or any other basic economy go up because the reality is that if it happens in midstream, it's not a helpful thing at all. People are going to get hurt. But I think the point that needs to be made here is that when we look at the, at the scoping plan and at the global warming plan, and we say California is the uh, seventh or eighth largest economy in the world, depending on the price of the dollar and so the exchange rates and so forth on any given day, uh, we are about the 15th largest emitter of greenhouse gases. So our footprint, our carbon footprint as, as a state is very low relative to our population or to our economy. And there are two very important reasons for that, because we're a big state and we drive a lot. Uh, But we buy more fuel-efficient cars, in part because people here are interested in innovation and in part because uh, we've had strong air quality regulations over the years that have made uh, the cars more efficient than what's purchased in other parts of the country. And another is that years ago, uh, at the behest of environmental organizations, uh, our public utilities regulatory commissions decoupled electricity prices from uh, the amount that the utilities sell. So we were the first place in the country uh, where uh, electric utilities no longer had to sell more of their product in order to make a profit. This has made a huge difference in our ability to invest in energy efficiency and make our economy more resilient and more, um, more, ability, more able to withstand uh, price shocks, such as the recent run-up in the price of gasoline. Uh, but uh, we do have farther to go, and we just need to use some of the same kinds of tools as we go forward. Ray, how does the price of gas affect investments into alternative fuels and technologies that you look at? Uh, there's no question the price is a big factor across the board. It changes consumer behavior, but it, it also, you know, provides uh, some umbrella for investing in technologies that haven't scaled. So the challenge for any new company, whether it's an automobile company or a biofuels company or a battery company or a solar company, is that they're going to go out and compete in a commodity market. So at the end of the day, they're selling a commodity. Uh, would you pay for electrons that come out of a plug in your house or what you pay for fuel is basically undifferentiated despite, you know, you see some ads that Chevron has Tecron in their gas and, you know, Shell has V-Power. And, you know, it, it's at the end of the day a commodity. And so price is is critical. So, so if we're not going to price carbon, which I think we are in the next administration and next Congress, we will price carbon in some way, probably through a cap-and-trade system, uh, you know, then, then uh, it's important to, to understand what prices the alternatives are going to be. So a high price of natural gas, high price of, uh, of uh, oil, uh, even high price of coal, and that will get more expensive as we price carbon will allow uh, investment, private investment, in small companies that haven't had 100 years to scale, like coal plants or refineries. And so uh, while they may need some incentives today, I think most private investors will tell you that we don't really care about incentives. Now, something like an ITC, an investment tax credit, is really important to the solar industry but the solar industry would trade it off in the short term. Just 
let them get some scale, but don't require them to sell power at exactly the same thing that someone had a 100-year head start to do. Um, you know, I've invested in three car companies, and one car company that's in Southern California, Fisker Automotive, I can see for the first time that this company in five years, I'll make this prediction, could have a market cap higher than General Motors. I just saw it today. That's phenomenal. General Motors is at a 53-year low yeah. of $7 billion. Yeah. First, First Solar, which is a thin-film solar manufacturer, has a $25 billion market cap. So uh, when, when you get those kinds of things, now we've had bubbles in the past, we've had, you know, but when you get those kind of economics working, uh, and I think things like solar or electrification of automobiles, uh, wind is already a major factor, uh, we'll, see, we'll see a lot of investment going into these industries. Let's stay on the auto industry for a moment. Um, Mary Nichols, chair of the California Air Resources Board. Uh, Automakers, U.S. uh, and international automakers, are suing California to prevent it from implementing pollution standards stricter than federal standards. Uh, California has countersued. How do you think this will play out uh, in January when there's a new presidential administration? And will the California standard eventually become a national standard on tailpipe emissions? Well, as far as our fight with the uh, auto companies and the U.S. EPA is concerned, that will come to an end after the November elections. Both presidential candidates have clearly uh, pledged that they will give California our waiver. And so we will be able to proceed with our emission standards uh, here that limit greenhouse gases from vehicles. But, you know, those standards are just a start. Uh, They're better than uh, where we are today. But we need to make uh, major breakthroughs along the lines of the kinds of things that, uh, that Ray was talking about. You know, by the 2030 time frame, every new car sold in California ought to be a plug-in vehicle or a fuel cell vehicle. And uh, we're not going to get there without a combination of, uh, of standards. We need the federal government to be in this and not just to be doing it as California alone. Uh, we're a, an important market. We're a, we're a big market. And because Californians have always been willing to uh, try out new kinds of vehicles, the auto companies are willing to uh, uh, locate their design facilities here to test out new types of things like the, the little fleets that even GM, well, I shouldn't say even GM, GM is actually a leader in this area. Fuel cell vehicles are actually trying them out in Hollywood because they know that that's where they'll get seen and uh, the buzz will come and maybe they'll have a Prius on their hands. And I, I hope they do, sincerely. Uh, but it's going to take a combination of both market mechanisms and strong standards to get there. And for that, we need the federal government, too. Yeah, we should, I think we should all be very proud of California's tough stance here because, in the end, what happens is, uh, as California goes in the, tr- in the transportation business with, with uh, emissions controls, so goes the car industry. So they know that California is by far the largest car market. And if they uh, end up agreeing with and, ha- and need to build vehicles for the California markets and California emission controls, then they will build them for the whole country that way, too. It it's, makes no sense to have two standards. While U.S. automakers are moving slowly away from petroleum, and we had actually the chairman of General Motors in this room uh, last month talking about moving to different types of fuels, Dr. Pachari, uh, in the developing world, uh, auto companies are building and investing more in factories for internal combustion uh, of powered uh, vehicles. There's two new factories, billion-dollar factories, announced in India this month. So is there a chance that, and once those get built, there'll be a, a sort of a constituency in those countries for jobs and investment? Are, is India going to go down the same internal combustion road, or is there a chance that they might come on with cleaner cars? Well, I hope they don't go down the same road because I think that's the road to ruin uh, of society. Um, uh, let's face it, um, I think the auto, auto industry in this country has been somewhat myopic. Uh, I'm on the International Advisory Board of Toyota Motor Company, and I won't go into any specific discussion about what they're doing. But I've been deeply impressed with the kind of vision that they have. 
they're looking 50 years ahead and they're experimenting with all kinds of solutions that I think may make sense uh, much earlier than 50 years. Now, in the case of India, uh, I'm afraid our aspirations, even of the poorest sections of society, are driven by what they see as the good life in the developed world. And this is an opportunity where everybody is jumping in. It's an unsaturated and expanding market. So if you produce cars at $2,500 a piece, as Mr. Tata is planning to do, and I've crossed swords with him publicly on this, uh, and I said I wish he was spending the same resources in creating public transport uh, solutions rather than small cars. But, you know, it's extremely popular. How do you ensure that the public uh, decides that they're going to buy cars that are cleaner but more expensive? For them to get four wheels at $2,500 in, in a country which is basically poor is very, very attractive. So it would take an enormous amount of wisdom and effort on the part of the government to come up with regulations and standards that move the industry away from where they are today. But one last word that I'd like to have is what you, you alluded to. I'm worried about the fact that in a few years, this sector will have so much power politically that they'll do exactly what the auto industry in the U.S. has done. Uh, and I don't mind saying it, they've certainly been the cause of stagnation in the railroad industry. They have a large share in this, the deplorable state of the railroads in this country. And I hope that doesn't happen in the developing world. A, a year ago, uh, biofuels were all the rage. And biofuels were going to solve all of our problems. And it was seen as a, as a panacea. And that had changed very quickly. And now there's a broad consensus, perhaps outside the Corn Belt, that at least corn ethanol is not uh, a, a good choice. So what does the, the biofuel sort of cycle tell us about doing things quickly where we rush into something that we think is going to solve our problems and we realize, wait a minute, this isn't such a good idea. We have to go quickly, but we can, but going quickly we can make mistakes, right? So can I correct something you've said? Uh, it, it, in terms of looking at ethanol and its potential, you know, in, in the vehicle market, you can do basically three things inside the, the market. You can make the vehicle lighter and more aerodynamic, make it more efficient. You can change its fuel, or you can change its powertrain, put a battery in. And I think the ethanol industry will be huge. The focus on corn ethanol has gotten everybody very, very confused. Corn was never a good source of fuel. Never. So scientists will tell you, when they look at corn, the first time, I mean, corn ethanol has been around for a long, long time. Farmers in North Dakota have been using corn ethanol for their tractors for a long, long time. But for a tractor, it might have been okay with low-cost you know, gasoline as a substitute. When you start comparing the energy content of corn-based ethanol, it is a poor fuel. It has nothing to do with food. Of course, when you add it, it's a, it has to compete as a food source, then it becomes even worse. But it was never so. It's a fool's errand for those that were investing in corn ethanol five, six years ago. Even when the stocks were running up like crazy because the president was passing laws and, you know, to, to consume ethanol, it was never going to be versus alternatives like cellulosic stocks and uh, even improved plants that could be uh, much higher yields. And I'm talking about 8 to 10, 15 times the energy output of corn. So it was never a good idea, but ethanol is a very good idea. I could just jump in on that also. Uh, let me, uh, sorry, Mary, I just okay. want to say one more thing. So we can talk about electric cars, and I'm a big proponent of electric cars, and I think we'll see tens of thousands of electric cars sold in the next num number of years. If you change the fuel, you affect a billion cars. You know, and so uh, it, it just has to be well thought out, the right ethanol. I agree with that. I just wanted to say that uh, 
uh, corn ethanol is a product of government policy. It was a it was a farm policy more than it was a fuel right. policy. It was a, it was a product in search of a solution. And at the national level, the number of states that were promoting right. that particular policy outweighed the number of states that opposed it. California has always been on the other side of that issue. We've been in favor not because we were anti-corn or anti-farm, but because we believed in a performance-based approach to these things. Figure out what the problem is, and then let the market come up with the right solution. Uh, I, I think it's um, important to say that one of the things about doing climate policy is that it requires us to think in a life cycle way about products that we've never had to really think about before. So uh, in California, when uh, the, the governor issued an executive order mandating us to develop a low-carbon fuel standard, it specifically required us to do a full fuel cycle analysis of the carbon, which means everything from the way it's grown to the way it's used to the way it's disposed of. And these kinds of analyses are taxing some of the brightest minds uh, right now uh, in, in the university to come up with the, with the right metrics or the right tools to use. But if we're going to make the kind of big investments that it takes to change over the whole fuel supply from this huge investment that we have now in uh, petroleum, we're going to we're gonna have to do that. Let me just say a word on this. I think uh, the corn-based ethanol conversion is really a very soft option. It really is something that was done as a measure of expediency and doesn't represent good policy at all. Similarly, in some developing countries, there's this effort to convert palm oil on a large scale to fuels, and that's causing havoc. People are clearing forests to produce uh, palm oil. And I think there ought to be regulation on the part of governments to ensure, I mean, just like you have farm support policies, which are essentially help, are there to help the farmer, there should be something to help the consumer. If you're going to deprive the world of food production uh, based on a stable pattern of production that the whole world has now got used to and is dependent on, uh, you're causing a huge social disruption. Let me say that there are obviously good solutions, like conversion of cellulosic material to, to uh, fuels, and I hope in the next few years we'll get commercially viable technologies. And if you do, there's a large quantity of agricultural residue in developing countries, in India itself. There's anywhere between 600 to 800 million uh, agricultural residue that's produced, which could easily be converted, a good part of it could be converted to um, ethanol or other fuels. Similarly, we have a plant called Jatropha, which grows on highly degraded land. My own institute is involved in a major project, 800 hectares of land, where the application of science and technology can create viable solutions. So, you know, I think this has been a hastily implemented policy, and I think it's totally wrong. We really need to look at good, attractive, viable solutions of the type that I mentioned and that Ray has just mentioned. Thank you, R.K. Pachari, Chairman of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. We're discussing global warming at the Commonwealth Club. Also with us are Mary Nichols, Chair of the California Air Resources Board, and Ray Lane, Managing Partner at the venture capital firm of Kleiner, Perkins, Caulfield, and Byers. Uh, there is, as always, an elephant and a dragon in the room, and I'd like to address that. Uh, a few weeks ago, we had uh, Fareed Zakaria from, from Newsweek was here with us, and he said that the combined CO2 emissions from the 850 new coal-fired plants that India and China are putting online between now and 2012 is five times the total savings of the Kyoto Accords. And this is a quote. So you can put all those curly light bulbs in and drive all the Priuses you want. India just ate that for breakfast, and China will eat the next round of conservation for lunch. So what do we do about India and China? Well, I think it's a serious challenge, and I would say it's not a challenge only for India and China. It's a global challenge. But, you know, there's a reality that one has to accept. Uh, there, are, there is widespread poverty in both countries, much larger in India than in China. And as an indicator, I can mention there are 400 million people in India who have no access to electricity. Now, unless we come up with innovative solutions, 
and we, my institute has itself launched a ma major program called Lighting a Billion Lives. Unless we do things like that, how can any politician tell people in rural areas who don't have electricity that just because we have to meet certain targets globally, you guys are never going to get electricity and your children and grandchildren will also not get it ever. I think we should also accept the fact that, you know, the U.S. has 300 million people. It consumes twice the quantity of coal that India does. Nobody ever talks about that. Why don't we bring about a transition over there so that you create space for the developing countries to use the technologies and the methods of development that are now established? And I'm not for a moment saying that the developing countries must repeat everything that the developed world has done. That would be a terrible mistake for local reasons rather than anything else. But I think there has to be a much better understanding of the global nature of the problem and the opportunities and constraints that the world is operating under. And I personally think an example of moving towards sustainable development and solving the climate problem has to begin in the, begin in the developed world. Unless that happens, you're just not going to carry credibility with any other part of the world. I mean, leave alone China and, and India. What about the African nations who are deprived of anything that comes close to a modern living that you find in the developed world. So it's a challenge, but I think we need to look at it in a much larger perspective than is often the case in these comments. But we can't use China and India as the excuse not to take action here because of the size of our emissions profile and because of our role as a leader in the uh, communications world where people want to have all the things that they see uh, on our TV shows and in our movies. Uh, in 1994, when I was working in the Clinton administration, we developed, uh, under a license, a very compact, very energy-efficient CFC-free refrigerator, which we gave to a firm in China to produce, and it became the best-selling uh, refrigerator in China because it was uh, very low in its electricity, and they just didn't have enough electricity to furnish to, so that people could get um, refrigerators for their homes. People wanted refrigerators so they didn't have to uh, go shopping every day uh, to make uh, dinner. And this was an example of the kind of partnership that we should be doing all over the place. If we, if we invent the technology to address global warming, the Chinese will steal it and implement it. <laughs> With, and one question is that in the uh, it's good like we, we can open it up open source uh, that that sort of thing. The related question here uh, has to do with precedent in the Cold War. After the end of the Cold War, the United States spent about a billion dollars to decommission uh, nuclear weapons in the former Soviet Union. We paid another country to do something that supported the U.S. own national interest. Can any of you envision actual revenue streams or transfers of dollars to developing countries to do things that will help them and help us? Sure. I think that was what was envisioned under the Kyoto Accord, uh, initially uh, with a clean development mechanism, which didn't work out quite as uh, well as had been envisioned in the first place. But the idea was to, in effect, uh, incentivize other countries to come in and join in a political regime to limit their emissions and, uh, and to do it with funds that would come from, from the developed world. Even before that, the Global Environment Facility was established immediately following the Framework Convention on Climate Change in 1992. But frankly, it really hasn't taken off simply because they've got to struggle for every single dollar that they have to get in order to promote programs in the developing world. I think uh, in some form or the other, the public and the electorate in the developed world has to be informed about the commonality of purpose in meeting examples like you mentioned about decommissioning of plants in uh, the former Soviet Union. I think somehow people must realize that by helping these countries, they are also helping themselves. Otherwise, you know, the question is always asked, always asked we've got poverty in this country. Uh, why should we 
fund others when we haven't solved our own poverty problems. For years, the global community has been talking about a minimum development assistance target of 0.7% of the GDP for the developed world. We are far behind. There are countries which are much better. The Nordic countries, Japan, close to 1%. The U.S., I, I shudder even, I'm embarrassed to even mention the figure. There, there, there is private capital that is moving into a very important market, and that's Europe. Uh, Europe has great technology, great research universities, great technology, and in many areas like uh, biofuels, uh, solar, they know more than we do. I mean, they, they're, they're, but there's no venture capital. It's a tiny industry. So we're seeing venture capital start to move to Europe. When you think about prior industries like software, there's one software company, SAP. Uh, so we're seeing venture capital move to Europe that will help fund entrepreneurs. They're kind of different type of entrepreneurs, uh, but, uh, but I, I think this will help bring uh, lead researchers and bring entrepreneurs kind of out. Today, they go to a commercial bank. I have an idea. What assets do you have? Well, sorry. And, uh, and, and so there's no risk capital in that society where there's really a lot going on in this area. We're talking in the context of people who uh, believe or understand that there's a problem to be solved. And, and one of the questions from our audience is addressed to Dr. Pachari. How is the IPCC responding to the many concerns voiced by scientists that scientific inquiry does not support humans as the cause of global warming? Well, you know, I'm sure when Newton discovered that uh, the fall of the apple was the result of gravity, <laughs> there were several who disputed that. I mean, new, new knowledge is always opposed. Uh, I was asked this question by a bunch of skeptics in New Zealand early this month, and I recited two lines from Goldsmith's poem, The Deserted Village, where he talks about uh, the, the teacher, uh, about whom he said... In argument, they possessed his wondrous skill, even though vanquished, he could argue still. Now, the point is, you have a transparent, comprehensive, extremely widespread process involving the best scientists and experts from all over the world, telling you that climate change is for real. And this is not something that the authors working on IPCC reports have invented. This is based on peer-reviewed literature. That's the manner in which the IPCC functions. We don't pick up a newspaper article and, based on that, come up with our findings. This is on the basis of very rigorous research which has stood the test of scrutiny through peer reviews. Now, if, despite that, there are people who believe that human beings are not responsible, well, I wish them luck. I suppose... Uh, they would at some stage become part of history like the Flat Earth Society. <laughs> there is one that exists even today, and these gentlemen and ladies, if there are any among them, ladies are generally smarter in these respects, <laughs> um, uh, they get together once a year and try to convince each other that the <laughs> Earth is still flat. I suppose we'll still have Tom a few Friedman says it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's making a lot of money telling us that it is. That's true. You know, uh, this reminds me, though, of the science debates that have surrounded our efforts to deal with the health effects of air pollution for many years. And every time uh, the government has tried to move forward in a policy that caused some change, there's always been a, an immediate uprise in the uh, skepticism, whether it was cigarettes and tobacco or whether it was the diesel particulate or toxic air contaminants. And there's no doubt that whenever uh, people are asked to do something that may involve change, uh, we suddenly begin to be a lot more skeptical about the, uh, about the science. But it seems to me, and I, I am convinced by the science, but it seems to me that uh, most of what we're talking about asking people to do to take the precautions that need to be taken to stop the growth in emissions of greenhouse gases are things that they should be doing anyway for other reasons. The co-benefits, as we like to call them, from the perspective of health, of air pollution, of green technologies, of jobs, whatever it is, these things in and of themselves would justify the measures that we're talking about in California. 
Thank you to Mary Nichols, chair of the California Air Resources Board. We're discussing global warming at the Commonwealth Club. Also with us are R.K. Pachari, chairman of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and Ray Lane with Kleiner Perkins, Caulfield & Byers. Uh, Dr. Pachari, we have a question uh, about, in light of James Hansen's latest research about 350 parts per million as the target atmospheric CO2, might the IPCC adopt a more active role leading into the Copenhagen talks? And generally, you know, are we doing enough, fast enough, if Dr. Hansen is right? Well, you know, the IPCC doesn't do anything that's policy prescriptive. Our assessment is always policy relevant. We look at the choices. We look at the implications of those choices. What we are trying to do uh, towards action that leads to a good agreement in Copenhagen is to uh, disseminate the findings of the IPCC fourth assessment report. And this is one of the reasons why I'm traveling like crazy. My distinguished colleague from the IPCC, Dr. Sh Stephen Schneider, I believe is traveling to Tokyo tomorrow. Uh, all of us are busy in spreading the message. And I think it's for the negotiating community and those who are responsible for arriving at this agreement to pick up the options that are there in the fourth assessment report of the IPCC. And Jim Hansen's voice is a very powerful and a very influential one. I'm sure that would also have a major impact in uh, influencing the outcome that uh, we get in Copenhagen. Another question from the audience. How do we build a movement to change values and behavior, moving people from awareness to action quickly to adopt to the rapid change we, we are experiencing? How do we build a movement? I think, again, it has to be part of a major effort involving the media. And I think some of us have to voice opinions, views based on facts and scientific analysis that uh, represent thinking out of the box. Um, and I think the time is ripe to do that. I would even go to the extent of saying that uh, people must accept the need for bringing a change in bringing about a change in lifestyles. I make myself unpopular in several places by saying that uh, people should eat much less meat. Uh, and my argument for that is that you'll be healthier and so would the planet. So uh, I think we somehow have to package messages on what people can do in their own personal lives. If we translate uh, the findings of science into something that can be carried out by people on their own, I think it will have an influence. A behavioral change is very difficult to achieve, in especially in widespread consumer adoption. Um, new technology can do it, but it takes a decade. But the only technology I've seen adopted faster than a decade was a fax machine in Japan. Uh, but uh, you know, most technology takes over a decade to get fully adopted. Um, so you have new technology, you have prices like we have going on with gas prices today. You certainly have education and, uh, and, and Vice President Gore's Alliance Association that's now you know, funded with $300 million ads to educate about climate uh, change. And I think, the, I think the most powerful would be those, those of us that grew up in the 60s understand the power of generational movements. And I think we're going to see that. I think we're going to see it occur with climate change if we don't take action soon enough. I think the, the, the college-aged, you know, in their 20s generation is going to rise up and say this is, this is not acceptable, uh, that you're not moving fast enough because this is the planet we have to live with, and it will be, feel a lot like uh, a 60s uh, movement. I think we always underestimate the power of uh, values changes that people uh, can uh, initiate on their own when they come to the realization that um, there's an injustice that they can do something about. Um, having myself uh, lived in a time when we went through the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement, seeing the changes in what we find acceptable in treatment of animals, I mean, all sorts of things that would have seemed unthinkable 
um, you know, even a couple of decades ago, really, uh, are now uh, are now thinkable and, in fact, commonplace. So I don't think we should feel discouraged about the ability uh, when people understand that something is a problem that they can do something about uh, to mobilize that kind of action. It, it would be wonderful. The numbers I don't I have not seen them published, but. If you just take Dr. Pachari's suggestion that everybody stops eating meat, seems an easy thing, actually, doesn't it? There are alternatives. There's a, there are plenty of other things to eat. That would have, what's an estimate? Everybody on the planet stops eating meat. What, what happens? Problem solved? Well, I have some numbers. I'm sorry I don't have them right here, but it's pretty substantial. Yeah. I'm, I, just to give you an example, one number that I've seen is that if everyone ate 20% less meat in the United States, it would be like everyone switching to an SUV. That's the equivalence. Switching to... Uh, away from an away SUV? From yeah, and switching to an electric vehicle. Oh, what am I saying? No, not to an... <laughs> like switching to a hy- hybrid. Yeah. Not, not an SUV. I'm sorry, I'm just... <laughs> Just had a long day. <laughs> but, but that's hard to understand for average consumers to say, why does meat have anything to do with it? What is the, the life cycle that makes meat, right. the, the, the poultry industry and the beef industry, probably the, the most guilty industry on the planet? For carbon emissions. Spin that out a little bit. Why is it? Because of the petroleum for a fertilizer that goes into... Elaborate. How, Refrigeration. How because the entire beef cycle, firstly, you've got to clear... Often you've got to clear forests to create pasture land. Then the whole process by which you produce beef is transported often to other countries under refrigeration. You've got food miles involved in this and and refrigeration miles. And then it goes to warehouses, it goes to retail outlets, and then people store it in their freezers in their homes. So if you were to account for all the emissions of carbon dioxide resulting from this cycle. And it's the, enormous. And the electricity goes into food production for the beef and the methane that comes out of the beef <laughs> when it's, it's alive. <laughs> we have a number of questions that have to do with uh, uh, land use, whether there'll be a migration from into cities. Uh, why isn't there more talk about high-speed rail? And a whole host of questions about sort of the way we use land and whether there's going to be a migration into cities as required of this. So let's talk about those issues of rail and, and land use. Well, I think there are different patterns in different parts of the world. I mean, if you look at Japan, a very compact uh, land area where you have high density of population. Despite that, they have a large area under green cover. Now, over there, uh, it's certainly uh, much easier to depend on public transport. But in North America, where you've had this suburban sprawl, clearly to bring about change is not going to be easy. But what bothers me greatly is the situation in developing countries. If you take a country like India, 1.1 billion people plus, Um, we have currently two-thirds of the population living in villages. Now, if a large percentage of those start streaming into the cities, I think there's going to be a breakdown of the cultural cohesion that you have in the villages. But more than that, I think they're going to practice lifestyles that are far away from the reality of living in harmony with nature. And that, to me, will bring about a transformation very similar to urban living in the developed world. We already see that happening in, uh, in the cities of the developing world. So uh, we need to find some means by which jobs can be generated, opportunities can be created in rural areas, and that critically requires the provision of energy. You need cold chains in rural areas. You need the means by which you can store vaccines and medicines and so on. You also need transport facilities whereby they can access the market. So I believe that we need a totally different pattern of development, which should not at all emulate what has happened in the developed world. Otherwise, I think you're just going to get an identical process by which we're going to use the same resources. Gandhi was very wise. He was once asked... Uh, Mr. Gandhi, wouldn't you want India to reach the same level of prosperity 
as Britain. He said it required Britain to use the resources of half this planet. How many planets will India require? <laughs> so I think we need to be concerned about that. Generally speaking, um, cities are more energy efficient than rural areas uh, or suburbs. And so I think uh, sometimes cities get a bad rap, but without a certain level of density, you can't justify mass transit, for example. You just can't make it work uh, economically. Uh, Energy efficiency in buildings and housing is a lot easier uh, when you have more compact forms of development. But, of course, there's a right size to things. At a certain point, cities can become so enormous that there's no cohesiveness socially, and you have other uh, social ills that that spread as well. So knowing exactly what's right um, is not something that's very easy to do, at least not by people who, who would try to impose those kinds of solutions. But I do think it's worth noting that you know, in our society, when people get the opportunity, when they get education, when they get mobility, they generally choose to move to more urban areas. And part of that is because of the uh, difficulty of making a sustainable living in a more rural place. So without a doubt, we have to have policies that um, reward people for doing things with forests and agricultural land that um, raise crops sustainably and that uh, make it possible for us to store carbon, since carbon is going to be our metric right. for, for everything. There are practices for forestry and for farming that will help reduce the overall uh, emissions of carbon and store carbon. And I think we need to be looking at those for all sorts of other reasons, just to have green space on our, on our planet and in our Th- state. This is an opportunity that most Americans don't understand. Uh, we have 18 cities over 10 million in population today. The forecast is we'll have hundreds of cities over 10 million in population in the next 50 years. So we're going to create whole cities that are, that are huge. And if we don't create them the right way, don't build them the way we, our cities in America and Europe are, create them in a wholly new way with building standards and transportation systems and new energy, uh, like Mazdar is doing today in, in the Middle East. Uh, but those cities have got to be built. And in America, we, we won't see those cities in in that we may have one, you know, go over 10 million, but we won't see uh, uh, that happen in the U.S. It's going to happen in South America. It's going to happen in Asia and the Middle East. Well, let me just give you an example. Um, three weeks ago, I was in Brazil, and I spent less than a day in Sao Paulo and then went to Brasilia. And my hosts over there had packed my entire day with a number of interviews and meetings and TV shows and so on. And how do you think I traveled from one place to the other? Helicopter. Helicopter. And the hotel roof had a helipad. Every other place I went to had a helipad. And here I was being, you know, flown over the city. And they said that's the only way way we can pack in all this. Otherwise, it will take you two hours to move from one place to the other. This is the way Beijing is going today. I mean, I first went to Beijing in 1981. It's a totally different place, a totally, yeah, totally different planet. Yeah. Went the wrong direction. Yeah. We're, we're getting toward the end, so I'm going to try to bundle some questions to try to get as many audience questions in as, as possible. number of questions about cap-and-trade versus a carbon tax, and, and on cap-and-trade, which seems to be the, the way that the state and the, the country is going. Uh, questions such as, uh, why shouldn't carbon credits be equally distributed to all citizens instead of just big companies? Uh, should early action be rewarded? That is, companies that have cleaned up their act, should they get some kind of benefit compared to companies? needs that are, are laggard. So let's talk about rewarding early action and, and the individual role in cap-and-trade. So I think many of us think that a tax is more efficient, but it ain't going to happen. <laughs> it's America. And, uh, and so cap-and-trade probably will happen. It's market-based uh, if it's done, uh, done fairly. Early movement should be rewarded if it can be measured. Um, uh, uh, but cap-and-trade system will be will be, oh, thank goodness others have gone through the education process of building cap-and-trade systems, and we should have a cap-and-trade system or a carbon pricing mechanism in this country, and we should do it as fast as possible. The uh, carbon allowances under a cap-and-trade system don't need to be given away. They can be auctioned, and that's the preference that we've expressed. We haven't 
designed the program yet because we're working with the partners to do this, but I think everyone agrees that you need to try to get to an auction, which is in a sense the same thing as a carbon tax because you reap the revenue and the benefit comes to the public and doesn't just stay uh, with the entity that's, that's doing the emitting. There's even a proposal out there that has some interesting support from the far right and the far left uh, for a cap and dividend uh, program in which um, the revenues from, from the sale of the allowances would be distributed on a per capita basis to every person in the society uh, rather than government creating the programs and deciding how best to expend the money just you know, write a check to every person. That's what they do in Alaska with their oil tax. I don't necessarily recommend that as a uh, as a policy, but it's worth thinking about because um, we we will generate if we price carbon as we are as we're talking about here. It will generate a lot of revenue, and good things should be done with it. Well, I think a, a price on carbon is absolutely essential to get us moving in the right direction. But I think this would also be achieved by a strong agreement at the international level. And I think companies already are assessing their opportunities because if the world is going to move to a low-carbon future, then you better be there ahead of everybody else because that's what is going to give you access to the markets of the future. And that's precisely why people like Jeff Melt have launched the Eco-Imagination Program and other companies are also making investments. But I think incentives through the pricing mechanism can make an enormous difference in accelerating uh, move in the right direction. You know, companies, Greg, companies are on board with this. Uh, if you go into any large, most any large company today, what they want is certainty. They don't oppose pricing. But we need to be able to do long-term enough planning, which in the U.S. is probably two or three years, but maybe even thinking out further, if they know that carbon is going to be priced and it's going to have a certain range, and it's, you know, then they can price it into their business. But uncertainty, uh, so, so you have a lot of businesses supporting this direction and trying to get out in front of the, the parade. One of the phrases uh, that some talk about is loud, long, and legal. The, the business needs a loud signal on prices, mm-hmm. long time horizon, and of course it needs to be legal. Mm-hmm. Um, we haven't talked much about coal, and coal, we have a number of questions about coal. Uh, what do we do about it? Can we sequester it? Can coal ever be clean? So let's address the coal issue. Well, you know, the IPCC brought out a special report on carbon capture and storage. And I believe that uh, if the world is serious about burning coal, then we have to develop that technology to a level where it's commercially viable. Unfortunately, not enough is being done in that area. In this country, you launched the Future Gen project uh, to capture carbon dioxide. Now we killed it. Now we killed it. And it's been killed, <laughs> yeah. yeah, which is a shame. I think it raised a lot of hope and expectations. I believe that ultimately we'll have to come up with carbon capture and storage because Otherwise, burning of coal, where you've got a lot of uh, capital and infrastructure already committed, is going to be a major source of emissions. I'm going to venture out and say that we, uh, even though in California, within our state boundaries, we don't burn very much coal. We burn very little of it. We're still going to need carbon capture and storage because we're still going to be burning fossil fuels for some of our baseload power generation long into the future. This is getting a lot of attention and maybe almost too much attention because it's turning out to be the single you know, silver bullet for coal. And I think there are many other solutions for coal. The problem we have with coal, we burn it. You can do other things with coal. You can leave it in the ground. You can extract natural gas from it. You can boil it and create a natural gas from it. You have to still do something with the CO2. You can take the CO2 and make things from it. You can make uh, materials. So you could sequester CO2 in carbonate, in, in, in materials. Uh, there, but if we're going to store all of the, the CO2 that comes out of our coal plants, it's a huge amount of storage. This is a lot of CO2. 
We've reached the point where we have time for just one last question. I'd like to ask each of you uh, if there is one thing that you'd like to see happen uh, in the next year on, on global warming, on climate change, what would be that just that one thing that you think could make the most difference? It could be a technology or a policy or anything. And Mary? Well, that's easy. I'd like to see the next president take the United States to Copenhagen with a plan and actively engage the world community so that we become uh, the leaders that we should be in helping to forge the policies that are going to save our planet. Well, as it, oh, go ahead. as it happens, that's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> Because I think the U.S. must lead. And frankly, as I've said, I spoke uh, at the opening session of Davos this year. I said companies that are not with it and don't take the lead are going to be left far behind. And companies that, and countries that are not going to take the lead are going to suffer a loss of prestige and influence. Uh, I didn't mention any names, but after me and sitting, <laughs> si- sitting in the audience was Dr. Condoleezza Rice who spoke after me. But I think that's essential. If the U.S. wants to establish its leadership in the world, and if it wants to live, live up to its responsibility, you need a major effort to commit yourself to being part of the solution and not be seen as part of the problem. I also think this is the right answer, so let me add some, another answer, <laughs> because I would, I would agree this is the most important. Um, there is a silver bullet and that's solar. The solar energy that falls on this planet outstrips by far, by multiples, the total coal, oil, and gas that we have. And if we, so, so in the next year, we have Congress and the administration debating this very important silver bullet, and we're about to not extend, I don't think it's going to happen, not extend the investment tax credit So new technologies that can bring down the cost of solar will not get funded. And that is a travesty. So I would pick over the next year, extend the ITC for solar producers so that we can get to this silver bullet. We should be producing all of our energy from solar. Thank you for mentioning the sun and ending on a bright note. And with that, we'll thank you, our panelists and the audience here. Uh, R.K. Pachari, chairman of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Ray Lane, managing partner at the venture capital firm of Kleiner, Perkins, Caulfield, and Byers. And Mary Nichols, chair of the California Air Resources Board, for their comments here today at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, and this meeting of the Commonwealth Club is now adjourned. <laughs>